1: Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.
2: All-inclusive vacations
0: make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started.
1: Let's go places.
0: Welcome to Forward Thinking.
2: Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says it's like a knight in shining armor from a long time ago. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick.
2: And today we want to talk more about, about stories and storytelling, but you know, in the, our last podcast we talked about interactive storytelling, this idea of collaboratively creating a story in some way or participating within a story in some way. Now let's talk a little bit about um what stories that we wish existed but don't. Like can you imagine some of the greatest authors of all time who who maybe died before you felt like they had really produced everything they could have produced? Like are, are do you have any favorite authors that you wish had lived longer to tell at least one more amazing story?
1: Oh, of course. Well, actually what first popped into my mind was poets. I'd love to have more of Uncle Walt and Auntie M when I'm feeling when I'm feeling patriotic. You know, Walt uh-huh. Whitman, Emily Dickinson, I, I, I gotta feel the America, you know, coming up feel in the, me.
2: Right, r- bubbling up inside you. But
1: they've been dead a long time.
2: <laughs> right, so, uh, well Lauren, are there any authors that you can think of off the top of your head where you're thinking, man, I really wish I could have had one more book, or story, or play, or poem from this person.
0: I'm a completely terrible f- person. The first thing that just popped into my head was George R. R. Martin, who is not actually <laughs> dead as of the air. You just he will be
2: one day. <laughs> so you want you want an insurance policy to guarantee yes. that a Song of Ice and Fire is complete at some point.
0: Exactly. And
2: you want it in George R. R. Martin's voice. That's really important, obviously. Right. right. You know, you, someone else could pick it up, but that wouldn't yeah. be the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. No. No one else would write and I'm being actually very earnest here the kinds of descriptions of food and dresses into my political fantasy that he writes well
2: you guys have both made my choice of Shakespeare seem pedestrian at this point. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm of course, I am a Shakespearean nut. I love Shakespeare's plays and I love his poetry as well. And, uh, we, there are already some plays that may or may not belong to Shakespeare. We'll talk more about some of those in a little bit, but, uh, the, you know, there were, there's some lost plays that Perhaps we might actually have if he had lived longer to get to the point where he was committing these so that they could be published. You know, in Shakespeare's day, he wasn't it wasn't he, about w- he was he wasn't
0: writing them down necessarily any any more than to pass Hand out, out, out copies. The sides. Yeah, write, he would sure. give the
2: sides to the actors. But the whole purpose of the play was for performance, not for reading. So in Shakespeare's day, very few of his plays ever were published. It was only after his death when uh, his contemporaries contemporaries began to, to gather them all together. People who worked in the King's Men production company began to gather his stuff together. And then even then, there were points where scholars have argued whether other plays should have been included. Perhaps there were plays that Shakespeare wrote when he wasn't writing for the king's men that weren't included
0: and a few have been attributed to to other authors sure
2: now well, I some just people want, think shakespeare didn't write any of those plays they're right? wrong so <laughs> i i would love it if uh if shakespeare could churn out a few books i would love it if dickens could finish oh, the yeah. mystery of edwin drood because there's nothing more irritating than a mystery that ends halfway through He who was, killed him you, who, or did he even die oh yeah <gasps> He may have just disappeared. There's a know.
0: there's a science fiction book that CS Lewis never finished before his death, but I would very much like to read the ending to. Oh, I would yeah. have
2: liked to have read the Cimmerillion as if Tolkien had actually written it in a form that was meant to be read by a human being, as opposed to a collection of things that his son pulled together from various works and notes and then put into a some big, kind of bizarre
0: encyclopedia.
2: Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I genuinely love the Cimmerillion, but I I wonder what it would have been like had Tolkien actually himself Put it Club, all together. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there are lots of different examples, obviously. Uh, I mean, Hunter S. Thompson, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, there's some authors out there I would love to have been able to read oh, some more stuff. And Charles Dickens. Oh, I already <laughs> mentioned him. I, my Anglophile traits are starting to show.
0: And there is always fan fiction. I mean, you know, some some fan authors can write very convincingly in an author's voice. Well,
2: what if we could create a fan fiction style author that wasn't really a person? Uh, you know, before I get into that, we're going to have to talk a little bit about some some terms here, like artificial intelligence.
1: Artificial intelligence? What does that have to do with literature?
2: Well, we're going to get there. We'll get there. We'll take some steps first. So artificial intelligence or machine intelligence, this is a concept that's been around for more than half a century at this point. Uh, and it was something that was kind of played with early, early, early day in, in the earliest days of computer science. In fact, before we even called it computer science. Uh, one of the fathers of the concept of artificial intelligence, you could argue, is Alan Turing. Now, Turing was a computer scientist, before there were, was a word for such a thing, who uh, worked for the British government. He was working within the War Department to help decode messages that were sent by Germans using the Enigma machine. You guys familiar he, he with like that?
1: cracked the code, didn't he?
2: He was one of he was on the team, and yes, he was okay. highly responsible for cracking the code of the Enigma machine. The enigma machine was a physical mechanical device that the Germans were using that you would set to a particular setting. Uh, it had certain reels, and then what you would do is it had like a typewriter, and as you would type, the reels would channel a an electric signal through so that a particular light bulb would light up on the other side. But uh, it was designed in such a way so that it would encode each letter. So if you typed a G, one thing you could be sure of is that the one bulb that's not going to light up on that board is G. And in fact, that was one of the few things that Turing was able to figure out that that broke the code, was knowing that whatever the letter was that you were looking at and an encoded message, it was definitely not, not the, the real. Yeah. Exactly. It, it And you would think eliminating one choice would not give you that big of an advantage, but that was kind of the crack that really helped break it open.
1: Okay, so what did Alan Turing have to do with the idea of artificial intelligence? So
2: he was very much interested in this idea of what's what's the capability of the machine world? Are there limits? Can it go as far as humans can go? Can machines think? Can machines think? He thought about that in such a way – it's a little different than the way you might uh, initially imagine – a machine thinking. Uh, Turing said it wasn't so much, it wasn't really important if machines thought the same way that people do. In other words, what was necessary from Turing's point of view was that the output of a machine would be indistinguishable to what a human would be capable of doing, but the process not that doesn't matter. The process matter. was yeah. identical, right? Yeah. So in other words, if the machine was able to produce something that to you seemed the same as the way a human would produce it, it didn't matter how the machine did it. It just meant that that machine possessed some form of intelligence. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second, too. In 1950, he published a paper, Computer Machinery and Intelligence, and proposed the idea of the Turing test. Now, in general today, the way we talk about the Turing test is uh, you, the, a simple version would be you have a computer in front of you, a computer terminal. All you get is text. And your text is going to someone that's in another room. And that might be a person or it might be a machine.
1: So you're you're like in a chat setup.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you cannot see the other person at all or the machine at all. All you see is whatever shows up on your screen. And you type in a message and a a message returns back to you that's generated either by a person or a machine. The Turing test said that if you were unable to determine uh, to a certain degree of certainty – whether or not the 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 thing on the other end was a person or a machine, that machine was said to pass the Turing test. So, so
1: if it could imitate human speech through text.
2: Yes. So if the machine was able to carry on a conversation in such a way that it would convince you that it's another person, then it could pass the Turing test. It would at least seem to possess intelligence. And here's how Turing kind of thought about this. It's kind of a philosophical way of thinking about intelligence. So I... Jonathan Strickland, I know that I possess at least some level of intelligence because I have that personal experience. I know what it means in an abstract way to myself. Sure. When I talk to you, Lauren, and you start to display several of the same things I associate with intelligence, I then assume you, too, possess intelligence of some level and that That is just something that I am granting to Lauren from my perspective, because I cannot inhabit Lauren. I can't know what her experience really is. I can only base that upon the observations I make of her behavior. Turing says, well, if we do that, if you assume that every person you encounter has some level of intelligence, why would you not offer a machine the same courtesy? If it seemed to display the same sort of behaviors, you might as well say it has intelligence because there's no way that you can inhabit that machine just as there's no way you can inhabit another human being.
1: And in fact, saying that we know the machine is different because we programmed it might be an example of the genetic fallacy, right? The the idea that uh, because you know where a phenomenon came from, that proves it's not genuine.
2: Sure. Um, Yeah. And so when we get to the actual Turing test – We've had plenty of people design various kinds of, of uh, software. Usually they're called chatbots. These are just programs that are designed to interact with people and respond in a conversational way through some context. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of them have been pretty successful.
1: Surely they could never really trick somebody, right? I mean, um, I've talked to smarter child on instant messenger. <laughs> I don't think that's a person.
2: It all depends on again, the context and how well designed the program was. So for example, one of the earliest that was designed was uh, Eliza, which was created by Joseph Weizenbaum, and Eliza was effective within a certain context in that it was it was presenting a point of view of almost kind of a naive person someone who has very little real world experience and so as long as the real human being had that same kind of perspective it was fairly effective there was another one called Perry p-a-r-r-y that uh, was made by kenneth colby and that one simulated a paranoid schizophrenic Responding to questions and what they did was they ran a whole bunch of conversations between an interviewer and actual patients who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and conversations with Perry and then printed out all those conversations handed that to a panel of judges who were made up of psychologists and they had a success rate of 48 percent of saying which one was real and which one now in that case you're talking about. A specific context that has its right. own limiting factors.
0: Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're, you're talking about two different, um, you know, hypotheticals of a human person that aren't the kind of conversation that you would normally have. They stray on from a the day norm. Day they right. stray
2: from the norm. And in the case of Perry, you're talking about a conversation that was not conducted by the actual panel of judges. Right. So their experience is very different from someone who sits down at a terminal and is actually having the conversational moment. They're reviewing something that's already happened. That's different, too. I sure. mean, that experience is different. But there are other examples, too. There's the artificial linguistic Internet computer entity, also known as Alice. And there's a, a one that was made by Rollo Carpenter called Jabberwocky. Was Brilligan the Slightly Toves. Uh, that <laughs> one was meant to simulate human chat in a very kind of humorous way. I actually tried this one out before we came to the podcast. Yeah. I wish I'd been able to print out our conversation because, uh, I mean, you could tell that it was, or I could tell it was a chat bot. But for one thing, I already knew. So that. That's problematic, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I already know going well, into yeah, it. That's so yeah, that's not so, very scientific. Right. I would need to have like a, a double blind test if I really wanted to do this properly. But uh, also there were other giveaways. Like you would – it would ask you a question and I would answer – because it was being snarky. I was being snarky. I answered in a snarky way and then it w- didn't know how to deal with that. Like it didn't have enough keywords to work off of. So it would go with a uh, like a, a, a stock response that was just a generic response. And in fact, that's the way a lot of these chatbots work is that they search for keywords in the things that the person, the interviewer, is typing in. And then it generates a response based upon those keywords and if none of the keywords that it normally quote unquote knows, as in it, keywords that are in its database, then it will generate some other form of response, either a generic response or it will repeat something that it had already said previously in the mm-hmm. conversation.
1: So what are some of the ways that we think a chatbot could get really convincing? Because I'd imagine that we're not there yet. Right. But we're getting better. We are getting better. Um, and, um, and obviously there, there's some kind of hurdle we'd have to get over. There, there's some, like, strategy for supplying these things with conversation rules that we haven't quite achieved yet. I mean, would, uh, would machine learning have anything to do with it? Sure. Like the idea of uh, maybe mining thousands of other conversations to establish rules about how real people interact.
2: Or even... Having every time the machine has a conversation that it ends up reviewing that afterward and learning from its own experiences. I mean, these are
0: right because, you know, it's human, human vocabulary and human understanding don't stop when you learn a language. We're continually learning our own languages. We're learning new rules for it. We're learning new vocabulary for it.
2: We're creating uh, things like metaphor and simile, we're creating mm-hmm. these ideas, these abstract ideas that make sense to people who are native speakers of that language who have had exposure to this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But to something that is just creating, you know, working out of say a very strict dictionary of words, it would be meaningless or confusing.
0: This reminds me of that time that that IBM taught. Um, uh, remind me, remind me the name of the computer. Um, they they Watson. Taught- Yes, they taught Watson uh, Urban Dictionary. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, oh, no. Yeah, they, <laughs> then then after after uh, Watson started talking back at them a little bit too much, they were just like, let's just nuke that portion of Watson from, <laughs> from orbit. orbit. Yeah, it's the only
2: way to yeah. be sure. Yeah, it turned out that Watson, Watson developed a bit of a potty mouth. Like, um, are you familiar with the show Breaking Bad? Oh, yeah. Do you know how Jesse ends most of his sentences? Yeah. That's pretty much how Watson was ending his sentences. Uh, so... Yeah, they they found out it was I think Urban Dictionary and it was one other thing too that I think it might have been it may have been Wikipedia but I'm not sure. But they just fed get that it into Watson Yeah, to
1: mine chan for how to talk. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well then it just becomes unintelligible, right? Right. right. Haxor.
1: Yeah. Okay, so uh I think I've seen – I could be wrong about this. What I, I think I remember seeing is that uh, most recently Ray Kurzweil said he thought that chatbots would reliably be able to beat the Turing test by 2029.
2: And to be fair, when we say beat the Turing test, there's no hard and fast rule. Right. Uh,
1: I think what that just means it's is to, subjective, to but, yeah. reliably fool the judges.
2: Right, yeah, because there's – it all depends upon whom you ask, right? Some people say you need to fool people at least 30% of the time and then you beat the Turing test. Other people say, well, Turing had suggested that you show it to a panel and if the majority of the panel thinks that it's a real person when in fact it's a computer, then the computer beats the Turing test. It all depends on how you frame it. There is not like a magical, this is the way the test should be administered and this is the only way you can tell if you pass or fail. I just want to make that clear because... When we say passing the Turing test, that's so fuzzy. We really are talking about if you, the listener, you you who are listening right now, if you were to have a conversation with one of these machines, you would not be completely certain whether or not that was a machine or a person. We see this actually used a lot in uh, corporate settings for things like um, uh, customer service. So if you ever have one of those customer service things pop up when you are on a website and it says, do you need some help? Often, this ends up being a chatbot that actually just has a very deep series of keywords that relate back to the products and services of that company so that when you start typing things in, it can start sending you to links that possibly can solve your problem but more likely will cause you to go into a red hot rage burning brighter than a thousand exploding suns.
1: Of course there the goal is to get you to the information or or service that you need it's not really to trick you into thinking like wow I, I really just formed an emotional connection with this person. <laughs> or the goal right.
2: is to cut down on the cost of manning actual human beings and customer support roles but that, your, right. your point stands either way.
1: Um, so I would like to imagine a future where we're proposing the next turing test okay
2: so we've um, gotten to the point where we can have a conversation and not be sure if it's a person or a machine
1: yeah so either Im-
2: because the machines have become really smart or people are just dumb as bricks yeah,
1: imagine <laughs> we get there well, let's say it's 2029 kurzweil was right mm-hmm. um now we've got chatbots that people cannot tell okay. the chatbot from a human the, the, every single time you know it's statistically it's insignificant it's, okay. sure Great. um uh, Once we're there, what's the next step? What's the next hardest thing in that same sort of realm of imitating human intelligence? Well,
2: Joe, since this whole podcast is about storytelling, I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say it's storytelling. <laughs>
1: That's my guess. I, I think that'd be really interesting. I mean, so we can sort of imagine like we the, the chatbots we've interacted with today, they can't really do conversation, but we can imagine it. We sure. can see it. Yeah. Storytelling. Now, on one hand, I can imagine how an AI storybot would work, but on the other hand, it seems so alien to me. Surely they couldn't really create a piece of AI that could tell stories that seemed as good as human stories, right?
2: I... Right? I think... It would be a huge challenge, but I don't see anything that's fundamentally impossible about it. No, well, well,
0: I mean, if you take the fact that there are programs these days that can create music or uh, or create works of visual art, yeah. then you know, and and those are based on a few thousand rules about what makes a good piece of whatever media. Right. Okay. So,
1: well, well, let's let's set it up now. Let's describe the literary Turing okay. test. Okay. The, what what kind of test would a story bot have to pass?
2: Well, you'd have to be able, I would say, to read the story and feel like it was satisfying, satisfying, for lack of a better word, organic, that that it did not. It it was not just a series of choppy sentences where a person goes through some mundane task. It would need to be uh, it would need to be engaging i know you love that word joe i keep using it because of that but it would need to it would need to captivate an audience in some way either because of the actual plot or the characterization or some combination thereof and it would need to it would need to have a narrative flow it would need to have internal consistency so in other words things that happen earlier in the story could not be contradicted later in the story let's say that you have a story about a father and uh the father experiences the heartbreak of a child dying and that's a terrible thing this is something that we would encounter in a story a novel whatever sure. but then three chapters later the child's there and nothing has gone wrong and there's it's not like it's mystery or anything it's just that the child had never died that oh, right, would be a problem right
0: and and either you know either adhering to those rules or if it breaks those rules to be breaking them in a way that seems conscious and purposeful. purposeful
2: exactly it couldn't just be breaking rules indiscriminately yeah here's my
1: blanket rule for the literary turing test i've imagined okay um it doesn't have to create stories that are as good as your favorite author it just has to do in the same way that the original turing test didn't have to be as great a conversationalist as your most interesting friend right it just has to be good enough that you think this is probably written by a human being.
2: Sure. I've read some awful stories, so the bar is set fairly low. <laughs> um, we're going back to that fan fiction thing now. Yeah, uh, but
1: you've read some awful stories, but even people who are bad writers write better stories than than we could generate now with AI. Mm-hmm. Oh, come I on. I've read some now.
2: really bad stories. Yeah, okay. I've, I've read
0: some really bad things. Well, let's,
2: okay. let's, let's put it this way. The but way, the way a computer would generate a story right now, the, the only way I think you could have one where it would have any sort of, of actual sense to it, uh, unless you were to have an incredibly powerful computer and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of programming time built into it. Would be if you went the Mad Libs approach, where you had a story outline that already existed, and the computer was just filling in the blanks. And even okay. then, it's not necessarily going to make a whole lot of sense. Of
1: course, that that wouldn't be generating no. the original story. No,
2: that yeah. would. In fact, I've seen generators that do this kind of thing sure. where they they follow very simple rules. So, for example, my father created a program in Apple Basic <laughs> back in nineteen eighty five. I want to say so. Yes, we had computers back then. <laughs> Uh, and he created this program that was a science fiction novel title generator. And it had just very simple rules where it would take some ridiculous adjective and ridiculous nouns and pair it up together so that you would get a sentence or, or a title that would just sound like yeah I could totally see that being on the store shelf mm-hmm. in the science fiction <laughs> fantasy section uh-huh. the were, burning
0: lampshade of Venus right kind of exactly stuff, yeah. that would be
2: a mm-hmm. that would be a great example it reminds me of a I
1: saw online a while back a James Bond movie title generator but that one spit out horrible things it was like the last day to gun or like oh uh, yeah because uh, it was my favorite was Ball Eyes.
2: <laughs> it's because it was taking it was taking existing James Bond titles and yeah. breaking them up and then putting them back together. So instead of instead of creating a really deep uh, uh, database of words to work from, it was just like let's put in every title of every ball James Bond eyes. film. Yeah, yeah, so Thunderball and uh, Goldeneye maybe or something like that. Yeah, or, yeah, um, yeah. So 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 okay.
0: the, the the components that we're trying to smush together here to to create this literary turing test passing machine are are that that vocabulary you mm-hmm. you, you want to have yeah. enough vocab so that you're not just ball eyes yeah, into the next century be you the know?
1: most basic it would just have to know what words mean in a robust way
0: right right uh you know it, it needs to be able to work with the tropes and metaphors of of the culture that it's writing for i mean because you know it, a, a lot of books will contain a lot of stories contain references to Countless other stories, and sure. and are using um, the bits and pieces, the, uh, the the devices and conventions of storytelling that a culture is used to.
2: Right, they're either either uh, deliberately playing on those tropes or they're deliberately d- defying them. But in either case, it's something where the awareness is important,
0: mm-hmm. both um, both
2: for the storyteller and the audience.
0: It it it's got to have a, a advanced level of machine learning, which you guys mentioned earlier, which is which is the science of getting a computer to do something without explicitly having told it to do it.
1: Right, because there are just too many rules. You you could not possibly code them directly. Right,
0: sure, sure. It's it's you know machine learning is what's behind something like uh, telling a, a Google car to go down a street without it ever having seen that street before. Right. Um. Uh, you know, it's it's also what goes into into web search and lots of other, you know, the, the human genome project, everything like that is mm-hmm. based on machine learning, um, and and then a a basic, I mean not basic because this is actually really huge, an ontology, a, a semantic or abstract model of data, um, that that builds upon databases which are logic or, logical or physical. Okay. Um. So you know, it's. The term comes from philosophy where it's used to describe um, studies of nature or existence, and it was picked up by early AI researchers researchers to um to define the, the the objects, concepts, and other entities that are presumed to exist in in some area of interest and the relationships that are held among them.
1: Right. so uh, let's make this concrete. Let's imagine a story. Okay, say there's a story where there's like a murder or something. All right. Uh you know, Colonel Mustard kills Mr. Body. And and this is a murder mystery about the story. Well, it the computer that's generating the story would have to have such a robust understanding, not just of what a word like knife means, like not just that it's a noun or whatever, but that it has relationships. So it can be found in the kitchen. It can be used for murder.
2: Yeah, Um, maybe it's found in Mister Body.
1: Yeah, it can, uh, (laughs) but it can also be a clue. Sure, Uh but there's
0: also metaphors about being on a knife's edge, right? Or and
1: so it would have have to to understand as well. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't just have to have knife in like its library, but it would have to have a, a connected web of relationships to other terms.
2: Furthermore, you would have. Other relationships you'd have to determine, like the fact that you would have, uh, you know, uh, uh, Colonel Mustard as murderer, Mister Body is victim, but you might have Mister Green as suspect. You yeah. might have Scarlet as suspect. You know, this, these would be these would be different definitions. And then not only do you define everything, but then you have to relate them all to one another.
1: Right. That's the big thing. That would make it even more complex because in order to have good fiction. You have to have strong characterization and relationships between the characters. So you'd need ontologies that defined characters by like is in love with or right. has a grudge against. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: You know. Is afraid of yeah. that kind of thing. Or, uh, you know, for example, in our, our Clue or Cluedo uh, example, we, we could go back to uh, not only is Mr. Green a suspect, And Colonel Mustard is the murderer. But Colonel Mustard views Mr. Green as a patsy. Now, the other characters would not view Mr. Green as a patsy. And within the narrative of a story, that would be clear to the audience but not clear to the characters within the context of that story. It's a very simple thing for us to think about as human beings. This is something that comes very naturally to us. Obviously, when you're watching a movie or reading a book, you are aware of certain things that other characters are not aware of. And if those characters magically become aware of them, that pulls you out of the moment. I could see that being a very challenging thing to to quote unquote teach, teach a computer yeah. to to know that you have dramatic
0: to, irony exists and can be used in these ways, but right. not in these ways. And because and, then, and just
2: because one character is aware of something does not necessarily mean that another character is aware of that same thing. Uh, I mean, I, I I had an experience like that this week where I was watching something and I thought, wait a minute, how does this character even know this? And I it totally pulled me out of the story.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's clear just how difficult this is oh yeah how how i mean it i i'm going to say frankly it seems impossible to me now but I I wouldn't say it's actually impossible. Well,
2: I would have said that a computer beating Jeopardy! champions at Jeopardy! would have been impossible, you know, a couple of years ago. And then IBM with Watson totally proved me wrong. And they did it in a way where Watson was not even connected to the Internet. It was all self-contained. So the fact that there could be a self-contained database of enough information to be able to anticipate practically anything that jeopardy can throw at you and jeopardy is a game that includes things like wordplay where it's not just a standard here is your answer what's the uh what's the correct question you may mm-hmm. have to interpret that answer beyond just what the yeah, words say yeah there's little
0: jokes and and etc yeah there, there might
2: be puns mm-hmm. there can be references so the fact that we were that we <laughs> the fact that IBM was <laughs> able to create a computer that was capable of doing this I, I hesitate to say impossible. I think it's an incredibly difficult task. I would hesitate to go so far as to say it's it's an uncrackable task.
0: Yeah. Well, so, so so what's it like right now? This is what we are imagining in the future. <laughs> Joe, I, well,
2: I hear that you have some examples of computer generated poetry.
1: Yeah. Um, well. Okay. So. Obviously, I think it's pretty clear. Poetry is easier, I think, for machines to generate than fiction at this point. Because because
0: the rules of poetry are a little bit looser, Um, we expect poetry to be uh, wackier, abstract.
1: A lot of people expect poetry, you know, you can expect it to be associative rather than narrative. And it's actually, I mean, it's got to be really difficult to get a computer to generate a coherent narrative, unless it's just following like a pre-supplied skeletal structure or something. Sure, yeah, Mm yeah. To tell
2: a computer, hey... Tell me a fantasy story. Here are four characters you have, and here is one, uh, one important piece of information that you need to incorporate. Go. That would be, I, like, like you say, Joe, right now, that's really hard to imagine. I mean, it's impossible yeah.
1: now. It, it wouldn't be able to, I mean, the, the computer just doesn't understand events and the progression of events enough to tell a coherent narrative from one, you know, that, that feels meaningful in any way. Yeah. I mean, has why didn't the Eagles just
2: give them a ride to Mordor at the very beginning? <laughs> if they <Yeah>. could.
0: <laughs> right. Right. But, but, but speaking, speaking as someone who, um, basically majored in poetry in college and very nearly went on to do an MFA in poetry. Um, uh, writing good poetry is really hard. Is incredibly oh, difficult. Hey,
1: I am, I am right there with you. I also studied poetry and I love poetry. Um, the difference is that you can get away with more associative sure. stuff. Now, it might not be poetry that anybody really cares to read more than once, <laughs> but it can pass for a poem.
0: Okay. Um,
1: so, this is a, I, I found this book. It was published in 2011 by Pure Press, uh, edited by a computational linguist named Arlie uh, Hertelow. And this is a book of poems called discourse.cpp. Okay, uh, That was created by a computer that was designed to generate ontologies. So what we were talking about before, you know, right. th- The idea of um, association establishing meaning for terms that it finds on the internet and relationships with other terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- the way that this book was created by was by machine learning. It was by looking at tons and tons of text on Wikipedia and trying to establish relationships between terms and then using that to auto-generate poems based on the semantic relationships that it had determined. I
2: bet its poem about citation question mark is amazing.
1: (laughs) Okay, The Umbrella.
2: Okay, this is one we have not heard yet. We heard one earlier that actually, Lauren and I both agreed, like we could imagine a terrible poet wrote it. We'll get to it, Jonathan. No, 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 no. I don't want you to read that one. I want you to read just ones I have not heard yet.
1: The Umbrella. You want an umbrella, and all you have is a flannel handkerchief and a sponge.
2: That's that's it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's brilliant. B- bicycles.
2: No, no, no. Wait, I'm still I'm still taking an umbrella. Okay. A flannel handkerchief and a sponge. That's that's a written by my a, life. written by a computer. Okay, okay. go go with another one. Bicycles by the computer.
1: <laughs> the cycles dominate the street. An infantry of two wheeled implements, tricycles, and rickshaws, most of them far left crutch carriages. The pilots are no duffers. Visitors rent higher priced engine powered recumbent three seaters, (laughs) flashlight and tulip included. All commute (laughs) as one would ski.
2: Pretty sure E. E. Cummings wrote something like that.
1: Um but hey no I want to read the good one the, oh, right, this right, one right, right. Okay, this okay, one okay. I actually this was kind of amazing yeah, this, this I, is I the actually, only one that we had heard I actually
0: if, like this one
1: Yeah if a, if a human wrote this I would think it was kind of interesting okay it's called love to love rather like prefer and wish to want first bother then approach chase catch eat and kill thank you <laughs> to love to remind and remember to know and to forget.
2: Ooh, that last line's kind of a chiller. Uh, kinda... I just like to you know, the bother part because, yeah. as I said earlier uh, in our pre-meeting, I said this sounds like the middle school approach to romance—like bother <laughs> the person first and then get the, convinced them to come—or the Anakin Skywalker school of courtship.
0: Mm, um.
1: So that's where we're, <laughs> that's
0: just, where we're at in twenty eleven. Yeah, yeah. Computer
1: generated poetry, and
0: I, and I and I think that what we can kind of take from this is that it's uh, easier to write poetry about um, about something abstract like love than it is about something concrete like a bicycle,
1: right? Like a narrative sure. poem. I mean, yeah. it
0: right yeah. right
2: you know, To see, I I, I would. Really, be curious to see what the first computer-generated stab at something like Beowulf would be, like an (laughs) epic saga. Uh,
1: Well, I I would say probably. So you have poetry on two sides. It's probably easier for a computer to write abstract or lyrical poetry than it is to write prose fiction. Uh, But it's probably even harder for a computer to write. Narrative poetry than it would be for the computer to write prose fiction, right?
2: Yeah, I would imagine so.
1: Because then you've got you've got to deal with all those difficulties of coherent, progressive narrative, and you've also got to deal with whatever you know poetic uh, tropes you're using, like not if you mention, have a length of a line, right? Or, exactly, you
2: know, like how much alliteration is needs this to be blank there? verse? Yeah, or, especially for th- something like Old English, where it was all alliterative and not uh, rhyming poetry. Uh, so. One of the things that you brought up in the video, and I think it's a really interesting idea, is let's say that we get to the point where computers are able to simulate, to a certain extent, the ability to tell a story. And Mm -hmm. it will really depend heavily upon what rules the programmer creates, right? So in other words, if I were to program an artificially intelligent storyteller, the stories that would come out of that computer would reflect the rules I had created which might be different from the rules you create, Joe. You might right. think that you know, especially so- something as simple as whether or not you value one aspect of storytelling over another could make wildly different stories. But we could get really granular, like to the point of how frequently do I use the word "the" <laughs> versus how frequently you use it, and that actually matters.
1: Yeah, that actually contributes to somebody's authorial voice.
0: Oh, right. You can you can actually um, take a take a genetic imprint of an author's voice uh, based on, uh, I I think, Joe, I think you've got a bunch of notes on this one, uh, based on like the the number of of times that they use particular words and the scope of their vocabulary. Sure. um, Like, yeah, I...
2: Go ahead. I'm sorry. And the grammatic
0: structure of their sentences.
1: Okay. Well, let's start with an idea. Um, In 1996, I think it was, uh, somebody published a novel called Primary Colors. Okay. Y'all know the story? I do not know the story. I do not know. Well, P- Primary Colors was a political novel. It was a Romanocleph, uh, you know, w- which was a thinly veiled story about the Bill Clinton campaign oh, right. in 1992 okay. uh, with the names changed and stuff like that. But it was published anonymously. The author didn't reveal his or her name. Gotcha. Um, and so there was a big question like, well... You know, we don't know who wrote this, but people were really curious. They wanted, you know, all they were positing all these names who were insiders on the Clinton campaign and stuff like that. Um, and there was a Vassar College Shakespeare professor named Don Foster, who uh, I've got this interesting uh, CNN article from 2000 about him uh, and about how. He used literary textual analysis to determine who he thought the author was, and and he thought it was the columnist Joe Klein. Uh, And it turned out years later, Klein admitted that Foster had been correct. Oh, wow. So how did Foster identify him? Well, it was just straight up textual comparison. Mm -hmm. He was looking at the text of the novel and looking at uh, the idiosyncrasies of the kinds of vocabulary and sentence construction, just how the text read, comparing that with all kinds of other famous writers. And when he finally stumbled across Joe Klein's column, he said, aha, here we go. It's this guy because he, he uses the same kinds of words in the same order, the Mm -hmm. voice you can just easily identify. And he was correct. Now, Actually, you don't need a really skilled Shakespeare professor to do something like this these days. Though it helps.
2: It helps. <laughs> because, because, as we were talking about at the very top of the show, Shakespeare produced a lot of work. And some of the work that is attributed to Shakespeare is probably a collaboration with other authors. Sure. In some cases, they're known collaborations. In other cases, um, there are plays where uh, it's suspected that Shakespeare did not start the play, but he finished it. And so having someone who is uh specialized in examining the way a particular writer wrote and being able to compare other works against that body of known work or attributed work is very very useful when you're trying to determine like is this actual play that we discovered that has no name attached to it is that actually a lost shakespearean play or whatever
1: yeah um so there are all kinds of Anonymous works throughout history. Think Mm -hmm. about uh the Federalist Papers, right? Uh Uh-huh. They were uh all all these uh what were they, articles published in newspapers, I guess. They were broadsides as well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um written by uh John Jay, uh Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison, right?
2: You're looking at me. I'm the English (laughs) history guy.
1: Uh yeah, well, okay, but so they were published anonymously. Um But I wonder if you could get write a computer program Mm -hmm. that can look at these three works and group them into different author sortings and then compare those different groups to works that we know by each of those three authors and figure out which ones wrote which. Well, bam, we've got it. So Uh, this is
2: essentially like fingerprint analysis where you're looking for points of comparison that are identical against multiple uh, criteria. Whether, uh, using the, both the, the anonymous work and then the known body of work, right?
1: Yeah, um, so the, uh, the one example of this type of software is a, a free piece of software called Signature. It's the Stick, Signature Stylometric System. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a computer program used for textual analysis. And one of the things it's used for is to, uh, uh, ass- is to assess authorship in a book where the author is questionable, or to identify an author uh, in the case of an anonymous work, like we were talking about with the Federalist Papers. Sure. And so how does it work? Well, it does the same thing that Don Foster did with Primary Colors, except it has an organized system of of analyzing text in a a machine-readable way. Mm. So it can look at idiosyncrasies in the way you structure sentences or in the frequency with which you use certain words or it can look at uh, the frequency of common function words like we were talking about before. Sure. Just using to and from and but and... If you
2: you frequently misuse a word, that's a dead giveaway.
1: Oh, yeah. And it does happen.
2: Oh, sure. You know.
1: Um, And all of the things that go together to form an author's voice. A distinctive authorial writing style Mm -hmm. are things that can be used to identify the author. And and we're getting better and better at this. There's another textual analysis tool that was created by grad students at Drexel University. um, And it's called JStylo. And let's say you've got an anonymous work here. um, And what it does is, let's say the work is about 500 words and you have a pool of maybe... 50 potential authorial candidates, and you have maybe 65 hundreds of words of text from each of the candidates. They say that's enough for it to identify the 500 word sample, the author of the five hundred word sample, with a very high degree of certainty. Wow! wow. Yeah. Um, and all, it, funny enough, this is kind of a side note, but they also created something that works the other way. Uh, so if we're getting better and better at using software to identify the author of anonymously written text, that seems like it could put people like whistleblowers at risk. Oh, sure. So yeah. they they came up with a program that does the opposite. It's called Anonymouth, and it <laughs> takes text that you write and helps you retranslate it out of your voice.
2: Oh, I see. I was just yeah. about to say, like, I could see this being a, a thing that that – that hurts anonymity online something that we already know is becoming a, a precious commodity
0: sure sure you know? but instead of just yeah. running it through babelfish and you know into russian and then chinese and then back <laughs> to english then where,
2: uh where you're thinking like i think i know what you're saying
1: <laughs> so this is really interesting how does this all relate to our ai storyteller well, well, well
2: yeah this idea of if
0: If we can work backwards, then can we work backwards to, say, create the Cimmerillion the way that Tolkien would have written it?
1: Exactly. So you can look at the rules that generate an author's voice. Mm -hmm. And if you can derive rules enough to identify an anonymous work, you can potentially derive rules well enough to generate new work right sure. sure
0: um but you know can can we can we generate a story the way that an author would have created a story because that's that's emergent behavior right there i mean yeah. that's that's something more than the sum of its parts
1: again it's it's one of those things where i'm i'm pulled in both directions on one hand i i can see how this would work on the other hand it seems so impossible
0: a- also i mean i, I I edit novels freelance and like I said I was a writing major in college and the idea of a computer writing a story is personally offensive to me like coming <laughs> coming into this podcast I I was angry about the very thought like I, I was I was totally ready to kill that computer before it took my job um, oh. but and, and but 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 doing research for it I found something that Ray Kurzweil wrote that that kind of struck me and uh, he, he was talking about Harold Cohen who was a computer programmer and artist who taught a, a program a thousand rules for drawing and and had it draw some stuff and Kurzweil asked you know like okay so who's the artist? Uh, Cohen claims that he is and that his computer has not been programmed to complain and and I just thought that that was a very neat way of looking at it you know the, looking at creating a program that can itself be regarded as a work of art and that what it creates being something new and not necessarily you know
2: yeah i think uh well first of all i think the idea of recreating work in the voice of another author an existing author is very interesting i would be eager to see the first what we would deem truly successful example of that uh i think it, if I th-
1: it's possible at all it's a long way off i
2: Again, I think it's probably possible, but I do agree that's yeah. a long way off. I think actually, I think that creating something Not in a particular years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah twenty to twenty to years. twenty
2: to fifty years. <laughs> I think um, I think that the I think actually creating something in a particular person's voice is in some ways easier because you are limiting the uh, the choices that your computer program can make. Yeah, they cannot choose something that would go outside of that. Uh, now, with some authors, with some people who have created stuff that's particularly tricky for example again i go back to shakespeare and the reason i do is because not that shakespeare was creating brand new plots we all know shakespeare took almost every single one of his plots either from history and then he revised it heavily or he took it from a pre-existing work but then put it into his own voice with his own motivations and characters um so that's not you no, know, that wouldn't surprise me to be able to create another Shakespearean style just based upon a previous existing plot. The problem is that Shakespeare was also known for creating words. He created words that we use in our vocabulary. He created phrases and metaphors that are now part of our common, you know, vocab in in English speaking nations and uh to be able to recreate that would be particularly difficult so that it would feel natural that you would create new metaphors and new uh phrases that would become something that people you could see people quoting i mean people are going to quote it it's a play you gotta quote it if you're doing it as a play <laughs> so that part is i'm um, it's hard for me to imagine but i still would be Reluctant to say it's impossible.
0: Right. So so your question is basically just can a work that is created based on a set of rules have meaning?
2: can it have meaning and can it be true can it have ingenuity yeah, can yeah. It, and you know I and I think you know meaning is one of those things that is found within the reader you get two readers to read the same piece of work and it doesn't matter if that piece of work is regarded as the best literature ever written or if it's just you know pulp fiction or anything in between some one reader might get a lot out of it and another reader might get nothing out of it or they it's, might
0: get two totally different things yeah. both of value out of it
1: right um, uh, maybe I'm just a sucker, but I I felt a little bit of meaning in the computer's poem about love. I did. I... <laughs> so
2: no, it, I, I it did affected too. Me. That
0: yeah, it I got wasn't a bit poetry.
2: A... It didn't even rhyme.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: uh, but no, I, I you know the the interesting thing here again goes back to the Turing test, right? Maybe the stuff that's produced has meaning. Maybe the machine never realizes that there's any meaning. And Turing would say, well, what's the problem? Because yeah. we just assume that the person who is creating something is seeing meaning there, and we cannot be sure that that's the case. Great examples there are when you have literature classes that say, uh, like the teacher is going on and on about how a certain passage in a book actually represents this one particular thing. And then you talk to the author and like, uh, no, that part is about a guy – Having breakfast, which is pretty much what I wrote.
1: (laughs) Actually, this is not a problem for me to imagine at all. We are so eager to find meaning.
0: Right, right. And personify machines to begin with. Yeah, we
1: we find meaning in things that weren't designed by anybody at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, we find meaning in, like, if I walk outside and I'm feeling a certain way about, I don't know, about a relationship I'm in or my job or something, and I see a hawk swoop down and grab a mouse... I mean, the hawk isn't trying to create meaning or entertainment. That for me, hawk isn't but thinking I will,
0: I'm a metaphor. Right.
1: <laughs> but I will interpret. That. I mean, that'll become meaningful to me. I'll see meaning in this utterly random event. Well,
2: sure. I mean, people also will create patterns where there or, or see things within patterns where there was no actual thing there. Right. Yeah, so like I, looking up at the clouds and saying, oh, look, it's very like a whale. So here's a Shakespeare reference for you.
1: I don't think a person had to necessarily choose a word to go in a certain place in a sentence for that word to have a meaningful effect on me.
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if this if this ever becomes a reality. I assume it will. I, if it is possible, it will happen. That that we can go ahead and just say because. I think it's one of those things you can say about the future: is that if something is possible, someone will do it. So it's just a question. The nature of, of
0: human curiosity. Yeah. yeah. So it's just
2: a question of when, assuming that it is possible. I'm curious to read it. Uh, it may, I may feel that it is a much better novel than. And uh, let's see. I'm just going to pick one uh, of the novels I hated reading in school. And it's a toss-up between Tessa the Durbervilles and Ethan Frome. So take whatever you like. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I might read it and think it's a novel ten times better than either of those.
1: Well, I, I'm going to guess that I am I might get some convincingly Dickinsonian. Dickensian. I was going to say Dickinsonian. No, 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 not Charles Dickens. <laughs> okay, Dickinson. I was saying Emily Dickinson. Oh, earlier.
2: Dickinson. Gotcha. I'd say I'm
1: I'm sooner to get some convincingly Dickinsonian poetry than you are to get some uh, convincing prose narrative.
2: I I think you're I think you're on target there. Yes, I would imagine that we will see this develop over time in various fields, and the ones that will be conquered first will be the ones that require the least narration. The ones that will be conquered last will be really really good poetry. Because obviously, one of the rules here is that the longer the form is, for a human anyway, the longer the form is, in general, the easier it is to write. Not that it's going to be easy to write a good one, but writing a good novel is easier than writing a good short story because you have to make every word count. Writing a good short story is way easier than writing a really good poem because you have even fewer words to work with.
1: Uh, he- here's the thing, too, though. If we're considering creating stuff by generating rules in a dead author's voice, how much work they have available is going to be a big deal here. Sure. Somebody who's got uh, you know 70 novels that we can feed in to generate rules from is going to create a more robust ai voice than somebody who published one novel and that's it
2: sure yeah that's very true so uh you know maybe we'll eventually get to a point where we have these computers just generating things in their own voices in which case it'll all be zeros and ones be a fascinating read binary the novel all right so uh (laughs) No, this is a fun discussion. I, I am curious to hear what our listeners have to say about this. You should go to our website, fwthinking.com. That's where we have all the blog posts, podcasts, videos, articles, all relating to these topics are right there. Um, find the one for this podcast, the the entry we have for the for the episode, and let us know what you think about the idea of computer-generated fiction and Tell us if you think that's a, ever going to be a reality, or what do you think the first computer generated book will be about? You now, will it be The Mouse Who Loved Me? Maybe it's I Have No Mouse and I'm a Scream. Who knows? Apologies. All right, so uh, <laughs> let us know, and we will talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com.
1: Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.